the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Hey, good afternoon and welcome. Thanks for coming along for the Tuesday edition of The Ride Home. Kath, good to see you as well. Mm, thank you, John. I have, uh, I've reached the, uh, the bottom of uh, the darkness of my life. <laughs> wow. I'm just saying okay. this. Okay. That's quite a way to kick off. I, I, sh- Dare I ask how this has happened? This is it. This is it. Here's the bottom. This is me today. I'm walking into a retail establishment. Outside is someone ringing a bell. Mm-hmm. One of the bell ringers. Sure. Handing out little candy canes. Okay. As they're ringing the bell. Super, super. They hand me a candy cane. My very first thought as I'm handed the candy cane is, don't eat that. That may be poison. <laughs> What has happened to me? You've been swimming in this sea for so long that you can't even trust the guy with the bell. What has happened? You know what you turned into? Tell me. The people in New York City that you left to get away from. <laughs> well, now it's in full bloom. I mean, the guy, in his kindness, ringing the bell, hands me a, can, a candy cane. The very first thought is, I'm poisoned? What has happened to my Christmas cheer? I don't know. I don't I'm know. just saying. Is that the bottom? I mean, a, a decade bottom. plus living in New, New York, and it's all coming back I at know. you. <laughs> the things that we think are buried mentally aren't. Maybe it's just a, a series of bad dreams, which I've been Have having. you been having bad dreams? Oh, I, had, I told you a little earlier. I mean, I, last night I was like topsy-turvy, upside down, twisting and turning in my dreams. Twisting and turning. Anything good, subject-wise? You know, not particularly. Oh, see? Okay. That's frustrating. Which may be me carrying this candy cane. Thing. I had a very long, involved drama in my dream last mm-hmm. night. It was like mm-hmm. it, it had plot elements really? and, you know, there were villagers. And villagers? <laughs> just a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had villagers in my dream it's for a while. a lot happening. Very good. It's one of those dreams you wake up from mm-hmm. and kind of congratulate yourself. Oh, You're like, wow, wow. I must be in great shape to come up with that story. Excellent. <laughs> Good. Good. Well, after the candy cane rebuttal today, goodness knows what I'll be dreaming this evening. Coming up uh, in today's program in the five o'clock hour, uh, the Reverend Terry Tim from Christ Community Church at the South Hills will talk about Advent. Also, New York City is going to plant thousands of trees because they have this new tech that is showing them that there's room for 250,000 trees. In New York City, and they want to maximize that impact. Good, good I like it. I always feel bad for the trees in New York City. Why? Because of all the pollution? And People all... use them as oh, bike. I don't even. I, I mean, they, you know, they, I mean, they're just brutalized. <laughs> it, it takes a hardy tree to grow well. Okay, in New York City. well, they're going to uh, several go for hundred thousand, maybe not several, tens of thousands are going to be subjected Excellent. to that sort of thing. Also coming up in the four o'clock hour. Um, our very own Jefferson Bible. You know what the Jefferson Bible I do. was. Mm-hmm, yeah. You know, he cut out the stuff he didn't like. The stuff he does not need. And everybody looks at Thomas Jefferson and says, that's horrible. But 
Dan Darling says that all of us do that to one extent or another. Of course we do. Right, okay. We just ignore the parts we don't like. Look forward to that. All right. uh, New stories for the day? I do have some, John. Four, in fact. Excellent. The Globe continues to rotate, Kath. Without further ado, the top four at four. It is Tuesday, December 5th, Mm -hmm. 2023. Number one. The United States plans to help establish a field hospital inside the Gaza Strip for civilians wounded amid the conflict between Israel and Hamas, the U.S. Agency for International Development announced today. USAID Administrator Samantha Power made the announcement part of a new $21 million aid pledge for Gaza and the West Bank. She arrived on a U.S. military plane carrying humanitarian supplies that flew into Egypt on today, which is the 60th day of the war. The plane ferried some 36,000 pounds of food and medical supplies to the northeast Eastern Egyptian city of El Arish, which is 30 miles from the border. Not immediately clear, John, when USAID hopes the new field hospital would be up and running. Number two, three college presidents, John, are testifying before a House committee, even as we speak, about how they have handled anti-Semitic incidents on their campuses since the October 7th terrorist attack by Hamas on Israel. Harvard University's Claudine Gay, the University of Pennsylvania's Liz McGill, and MIT's Sally Kornbluth were each asked this question. Does Israel have the right to exist as a Jewish nation? Who asked that question? uh, One of the House members. What? And all three agreed that it does. So at least that's comforting, right? Excellent. Good. Good job. A number of student organizations at Harvard released a statement blaming Israel for the bloodshed, drawing backlash from prominent alumni and U.S. lawmakers. Harvard leaders then criticized for being too slow to condemn the student organizations and not doing it more forcefully. A number of anti-Semitic incidents have been reported at the University of Pennsylvania, including vile messages projected onto campus buildings and disturbing emails threatening violence against members of the campus Jewish community and Jewish students at MIT have said they fear for their safety because they've been physically blocked from attending classes. That's from today's CBS News. Number three, as if that wasn't enough. An article in today's Wall Street Journal about a secretive Russian program of presidential pardons detailing the deals offered to convicted killers. If you survive long enough to complete your six-month contract in the Ukraine war, you're free. There are about 30,000 enlisted ex-prisoners, many of whom had been serving long prison terms for violent crimes, who have served in the Ukraine war and have returned home to freedom and are now traumatizing the communities in which they live. Communities across across Russia, according to today's uh, Wall Street Journal, have been brutalized by scores of crimes perpetrated by those returning conflicts. Prisoners are routinely dragged into armies for centuries up through World War II. This was something that everybody did. You know, if you needed to fight a war, you'd get all your prisoners out of uh, out of jail. But after World War II, there was this emphasis on the laws of war, and all reasonable people decided this is not the way to fight a war. Hmm. But it's back. It's back. At least it's back for President Putin. So you can read more about that. It is a long story, but extremely interesting in today's Wall Street Journal. And number four, to lighten the mood a little bit, I've got a weird animal story. Okay. Do you know, John, how best to capture an escaped kangaroo? Uh, Slowly? (laughs) With a net. That's the wrong answer. Police officers for the Durham Regional Police in Ontario, Canada, were on what authorities are calling a, quote, routine ROO. Get it? Patrol when they received a report of a kangaroo sighting. 
43 miles northeast of Toronto. So uh, they called somebody and they said, look, we see a, we, we I think we pretty much see a kangaroo here. And they said, oh, well, a kangaroo escaped from the zoo. And they said, well, we're pretty sure this is the one. What should we do? And they said, well, if you can go back, if you can creep up to the back of it and grab the animal by the tail, then you can, that's how you can capture the animal. And that is exactly what they did. They managed to sneak up behind the girl and grab her tail. She gave up, surrendered peacefully to police, received a ride in one of the canine kennels, and returned to the zoo, from which she escaped after four days on the lam. Hmm. And that is your top four at four. Interesting. A kangaroo by the tail Mm. solves things. Yeah, apparently it just kind of... Neutralizes Yes. Mm -hmm. And they don't know what to do, and so... They were able. She was the marsupial was able to be returned to her home base, Excellent. which she apparently didn't like hmm. because she, she, she tried to get away. Mm-hmm. Well, heck, after all those stories, my candy cane story doesn't seem so bad. <laughs> okay, that's all I'm saying. Okay, we'll take a quick break. When oh, we come back. That's why I'm here, John. Lincoln Duncan is with us in just a few minutes. No, Sarah Eckhoff Zilstra is with us, but we're going to talk about Lincoln Duncan. Right. Well, okay. And the building of institutions. Thank you. That's next it's on the Tuesday right edition. Sarah Acop zilstra back with us today, Senior Writer and Faith at Work Editor for the Gospel Coalition. Sarah, we're always happy to have you. Hey, I'm always happy to be here. Thank you. Always good, Sarah. All right, so you're having lunch with one living theologian. Who would that be? It would be Ligon Duncan, for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. So tell us, <laughs> for, you know, for people who don't know who Ligon is, who is he and why would you choose him? Yeah. So um, what's interesting is, I don't know if you know this, but yesterday was the 50th birthday of the Presbyterian Church in America. Um, It was started 50 years ago. And I think that's an important thing to know because it's a growing denomination, but also because in evangelicalism, um, the Reformed stream sometimes has what's called, it punches above its weight level or it has kind of an outsized influence. And I think in the Reformed tradition, the Presbyterian Church in America has an outsized influence. And I think in the Presbyterian Church, Ligon Duncan has an outsized influence. And so I think that in this nesting doll uh, thing that we're building here, Ligon Duncan is probably a more influential person in American evangelicalism than a lot of people realize. Interesting. Sarah, now I'm sure people are listening and saying, wait a minute, the Presbyterian Church has been around a lot longer than 50 years. <laughs> yep. So uh, there's the, there are a bunch of different varieties of the Presbyterian Church. So there's the Presbyterian Church USA. There would be mm-hmm. the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. You're talking particularly about something that is known as the PCA. Is that correct? I am. Presbyterian yes, Church am. of America. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. And what distinguishes that? from the other branches of Presbyterianism. Yeah. So I would, I mean, you'd have to dig in the weeds for a lot of things, but let me tell you the story of how they got started, and you'll at least um, be able to see a little bit of that. So Ligon Duncan himself, I'm going to start with him because his story is wrapped up with it. Okay. For an American, he is really well-rooted. Like, his family came here in the 1700s from Scotland. So they were here before America was born. Mm. And they, their family was Presbyterian in Scotland, and they took that over here with them. So his dad was an eighth-generation Southern Presbyterian elder in his church, which makes Ligon the ninth generation, which seems crazy to me in a country that is this young. Yeah. 
So he is really, really rooted. Now, when he was a little kid, like even before kindergarten, um, there was some uh, roiling that was going on in the Presbyterian Church. It was pretty big. Back then, it was called the Presbyterian Church of the United States, the PCUS, which you referenced. Um, And that was for all Southern Presbyterians. Um, but they they had a publication that was called the Presbyterian Outlook. And in 1962, on December 24th, so the day before Christmas, they published an article, and it, it said, do we need a Bible that is infallible? Is that necessary for our faith? And then they had professors from the four major Presbyterian seminaries answer, and they all answered different things, but they all ended up at the same place, which was, no, we don't need our Bible to be infallible. We can um, take bits and pieces from it, or we don't have it. It doesn't all have to be exactly perfect, the Word of God, for us to believe it and to trust it. When that happened, it wasn't the first time that people started getting concerned that the, that the mainline Presbyterian church was becoming more um, unorthodox, but it was definitely a turning point. And so immediately after that, um, a lot of conservative Presbyterians decided they wanted to start their own seminary where the professors would teach that the Bible was the infallible Word of God, and that is called Reformed Theological Seminary. They started that two years after this article came out, and then seven years after that, so 1973, 50 years ago, um, those the the concerned pastors coming out of the Presbyterian, the PCUS began the PCA, and they did that based around and in the belief that the Word of God is infallible. I see. So then, Sarah, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So Ligon Duncan eight passes this lineage on to the person we're talking about right now, Ligon Duncan number nine. Yeah. Yes, Ligon Duncan number nine. Um, there's all kinds of interesting things we can think about. So he grew up, um, his mom was actually a Southern Baptist, his dad was Presbyterian, but you know when you have eight generations of Presbyterians behind you, um, that's the church you're going to end up in. So they raised him Presbyterian. He had a really sweet childhood, which I think gives gives me a lot of hope as a, a parent of children. Like he, when he talks about his childhood, he talks about running around the church. His mom did music at the church. Um, he talks about having, you know, the, the interesting conversations, theological conversations over Sunday dinner. Um, he played football at his high school. He was involved in a lot of things. He loved the Lord. Um, when he was 10, he made a profession of faith, but it was when he was 14. Even after he made that profession of faith, he wrestled like so many of us do. Like, am I really saved? Uh, You know, is this, does God really love me? Will I really go to heaven? Um, And then when he was 14, he was at a uh, youth conference and he listened to a speaker talk about Ephesians. And he said, finally, it dawned on me and I finally caught it that um, I don't choose God. God chooses me. And there was such a relaxed, um, just a, a breath of relief from that. Like I didn't pick God. God chose me before the beginning of the world when he was knitting me together in my mother's womb. And my name was written on, you know, in his book before the world came to be. And that God, the reason I love God is because God loved me first. Um, and so for that, there was a lot of, um, comfort that came from that from him and um, his career started took off from there. He he went into the ministry um, and then he has always been such a busy 
person. He's high capacity. Um, you might remember T4G. He was one of the guys who did that. He was for a while president of the Association of Confessing Evangelicals and the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. But the most interesting thing as I was looking at him is I didn't see anywhere like Lig Duncan Ministries. And so mm. often with high capacity pastors, right? Like you look at John Piper, who has Desiring God, or Tim Keller's City to City, yeah. or Mark Dever's Nine Marks, um, John MacArthur, Grace to You, like all kinds of pastors who are really high capacity often start their own institutions. And certainly he has the capacity and the brilliance to do it. So I asked him, I was like, why isn't there a Lake Duncan Ministries? Why are you, he's been working, he's been a pastor for many years, and then he was, he's been working at Reform Theological Seminary for many years. So I was like, why didn't you start your own? Um, and what he said was so interesting to me. He said, you know what? I love the non-loneliness of a local church and of the mm. seminary where there are colleagues collaborating and working together. I just love that environment. Mm. And I thought that was so interesting because we live in a day where institutions are um, almost the villains, right? Like the we're, we're individualistic. We They're almost like a... If you're watching a Christmas movie and a guy comes in who's like corporate, you know that's going to be the bad guy, right? He's, he's not, um, he's impeding your own personal growth and your own self actualization. Um, and I think we've got the, our idea of institutions has gotten kind of twisted. So I love the way that, that Ligon Duncan looks at them. Sarah Ikov Zilstra is with us, senior writer and faith at work editor for the Gospel Coalition. We're talking about an article she wrote about someone you might not know, Ligon Duncan, who is the Reformed Theological Seminary Chancellor and CEO. And we're, I guess we're just having a conversation about what it looks like to be a, uh, a well-known Christian leader. But this um, is key, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sarah, talk to us about Ligon Duncan and racism and slavery. Yes. Thank you. That's the next thing I want to talk about. So here's the interesting thing. We can we can look at institutions and they can be really healthy and they can like shape our character and form us. And they're they're, I think, in many ways ordained by God. Like that's how we pass things on, like right governments or schools or um, the church are institutions instituted by God so that from one generation to the other, we can pass down what we know. We can give structure to society. Um, we can't really all live off vegetable gardens in our backyards all the time. There has to be, we have to be in community with each other. We were created like that. But our institutions are not perfect because of course they are made up of imperfect human beings. And so sometimes it is true that your institution will need to repent for things. So the PCA is interesting because it was formed after the Civil Rights Act, so 1973. So the PCA itself as a denomination never had any um, racist on paper official policies. They didn't, they were never in favor of segregation. Um, They were sort of, they were created past that era of history. But some of the churches, some of their founding churches did have that history. So there were churches in in the founding there who would um, prevent African-American people from worshiping with them or say, you can't be part of our church, or even you can't come into our sanctuary. And so around 2015, Ligon Duncan and a friend of his introduced a personal resolution at the, the PCA's General Assembly, which is when all their leaders gathered together, and said, we think that our denomination should repent for these things that our churches have done in the past. Um, and it was a little bit tricky because the question is like, can you repent for something that you didn't necessarily do yourself? And can you like, do you repent for the sins of your fathers? You do, but do you repent for the sins 
of some of your fathers that weren't really yours. And so that sort of raised a little bit of an interesting debate. Um, but the PCA and the church that Ligon led for many years both re- did a public repentance um, for those sins and moved on. And I think there's so much that is interesting there in realizing um, when it comes to the gospel or your institution, Ligon, like his father before him, right, who had to be choosing also between the PCUS and biblical inerrancy, or choosing between calling, you know, your de- sort of being loyal to your denomination or calling them out for past racial sins, both took the same path of, of choosing the gospel over their institution. Mm. I think is another interesting lesson we can learn from them. Man, there are we we spend a lot of time talking about bad leaders or leaders that have fallen or leaders that have gotten into trouble yes. or leaders that had to exit out the back door and not a whole lot of time talking about good ones. Yeah. I think it's important because I think they're out there um, and I think it can be encouraging for us. And I think a lot of local pastors are good leaders. So yes. probably your listeners, they're, they're pastors. They're, I'm for sure they're not perfect. Um, but if you're at a church where your pastor loves the Lord and even though he's making mistakes and even though your elders are not perfect either and making mistakes, um, if they're trying to follow Jesus and they legitimately love him, then it is worth giving your time and effort and money to building something that will outlast you. Sarah, uh, you referenced John Piper and Tim Keller, other other people who have um, major influence of, of where we are as Christians in the 21st century. But people are listening right now, and they want to know more about Ligon Duncan. What's a good resource? Yeah. So um, a lot of his, he spent the last 10 years of his life leading Reformed Theological Seminary. So any RTS stuff is there, but he's also on main stages all the time. So he's almost always at the Gospel Coalition Conference. Um, He writes a lot for TGC. He's on our council. Um, He also, um, if they go back and look at old stuff from T4G, he was always on the main stage there there as well. He loves to travel, which makes him a little bit unusual. Um, A lot of leaders do travel, but he loves it. And so he's often speaking different places um, and helping people think things through. So if you just Google Ligon Duncan, L-I-G-O-N is how you spell his first name, then you'll be able to find him. Fabulous. Thanks for this, Sarah. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's Sarah ekoff Zilstra, Senior Writer and Faith at Work Editor for the Gospel Coalition. Check out her book that she co-authored called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. If you are in search of a new job, It might be good to look at central casting in Hollywood because you want to look the part. So says a new piece in today's Wall Street Journal. Don't roll your eyes. Looking the part could land you that job. Now, here's the weird thing. Uh, Analyzing 63,000 job openings and more than 160,000 freelancers who applied for them over a six-month period, researchers have found that certain accessories or physical features give candidates an edge in landing that job. How weird is this? What, like like ears and... No. Nose? Even after controlling for race, age, and gender, researchers use computer vision technology and machine learning to help classify which attributes made someone be perceived as a better fit for the job. Different jobs favored different looks. The analysis showed that men wearing glasses and having a computer visible in the photo were perceived to be a better fit for software programming than men without glasses. Really? Boosting their chances of getting a job. Really? A beer 
beard also gave them a slight edge. With design and media-related jobs, one of the two broad categories examined in the study, flashing a smile and using a photo with high image quality was also important. Women sporting reading glasses and an artistic look were seen as a better fit for graphic designer jobs. Huh. Researchers from Harvard at the University of Southern California also found that certain photo features could tilt the selection process when profiles included equally high ratings from previous clients. On the other hand, the study said that um, looking the part for the job doesn't rely on just a candidate's gender, ethnicity, and age. Rather, paying attention to the details of a profile photo can go a long way, recruiters say. Quote, we would be fooling ourselves to say it's not the part of the package, said Jessica Van, founder of Maven Recruiting Group, a San Francisco job placement firm. It's generally a good idea, they say, to have a neutral background, no children, no pets, no celebrities in the photo. No celebrities in the photo. However, there's a story in this article about... A guy who would regularly work in his business with celebrities. He had a photo of Britney Spears with him in this profile, and he applied for a high-profile job, and he didn't get it. And they came back to him and said, you know what? You'd be better off getting rid of that photo of you and Britney Spears. But he continued to hold that photo in his profile. A week later, he got another job offer, and they said to him, oh, because you had Britney Spears in there, we thought you were super connected. That's why we want to give you the job. So... Go figure. I do, though, think it's really important that you look at that image that you're projecting of yourself. Yes. Right? I mean, you're not going to be in hospitality looking like Bluto from Animal right. House. Right. Right? The little kind of cues make a big difference. Totally agree. I think so, too. You can't expect to walk into a, a workplace and be taken seriously if you don't look like you're taking yourself seriously. Yeah. I think so, too. Now... It's weird, right? Because we live in this age now where everybody's looking for a little bit of, like, leg up. At the same time... Nobody wants to dress up for anything. No. Nobody... Wa- I mean, n- and I'm right there with you. I mean, I'm, it's not like you and I look at you. I'm wearing a flannel shirt today. You're wearing a sweatshirt. Yeah. So we're not killing it. But you just you broke the glass wall. <laughs> I'm wearing a tuxedo. <laughs> You're wearing a prom dress. That's right. And right? I feel right. it, it took me a long time to do my hair. Very nice. Yeah. I know. I mean, no, but here's appearance the thing. still matters. Appearance still matters. And even if you're not going to dress up. You still need to look good in what you're wearing. I think so. I think that might be the... What do you think? I don't look good in the sweatshirt. I'm not not looking at... (laughs) Let's get out of this conversation. All right. Let's just get out of it. Anyway, coming up next, our very own Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson famously physically cut out, like with a pair of scissors, parts of the Bible he didn't like. Well, that seems ridiculous. But our next guest thinks that maybe we're all doing it one way or another. Stick around. It's the ride home. Pittsburgh's Christian Talk on Word FM. The Jefferson Bible is a very odd chapter in Christianity. <laughs> yes. Isn't it? Yeah, and even an odd chapter in American history. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, rightfully so, the, one of our founding fathers, mm-hmm. a genius in Absolutely. what he produced for this country. Unbelievably creative and resourceful and 
a genius. A incredible intellect. But the way he looked at Jesus and <laughs> Christianity it was just different. Whole other story. Daniel Darling is back with us. He is the author of several books, including The Dignity Revolution, The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus, and several other books we'll talk about. But he wrote a piece, Our Very Own Jefferson Bible. If we truly believe in the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture, we cannot pass over the many things the Bible says about our lives. Uh, Daniel, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, great to be on in Pittsburgh today. All right, Dan. So the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth is what uh, Thomas Jefferson was working on. And in your article, uh, you show a letter that he wrote to John Adams that that he explained in it, in the letter to John, what he was doing. Tell us about it. Yeah, he uh, Jefferson, as you mentioned, was just a real fascinating person, uh, a life of uh, contradictions in many ways, genius, and yet, obviously, um, some significant, um, you know, weaknesses. And, um, you know, he, like most of the people of that era, grew up in a Christian environment, Christian home. You know, that's kind of the the air they breathe. Uh, But like Benjamin Franklin, kind of rejected historic Orthodox Christianity, though stayed close to it, if that makes sense, and was framed by it. Um, But, you know, he famously you know, cut out portions of the Bible and created his own Bible. He, he was not fond of the miracles. He was not fond of the resurrection story. Um, and, and some of the things that he just felt were too far fetched in his mind, he was a product of the enlightenment. So it was a sort of a, you know, for them to, to accept the transcendence of, of miracles and, and you know, the fact that Jesus was fully human, fully divine was too much for him. What, what's interesting about Jefferson is obviously it's a, it's quite a, bold and uh, step to, to do that, to, to say, you know, I'm going to create my own Bible. It's kind of hubris, right, to say to God, I'm going right. uh, that, to, that's great, but I'm going to create my own. But in a sense, he was more honest than many of us are where we do that in practice, right? We're not going to actually tell people that we do that, but there are parts of Scripture that we we would rather not be in there because they cut a little too close to the bone, right? Right. So he saw Jesus not as the divine creator of the universe, but just as a, a good guy? Yeah. he. I mean, he saw him as a good teacher. Uh, he didn't like the idea of the miracles. Um, saw him as a great philosopher, great teacher. The Trinity didn't um, make any sense to him. Yeah, he really stumbled over the Trinity. And um, that's common, actually, for folks who... Um, approach Christianity because the Trinity is such such a unique feature of, of, of Christianity. Um, and and again, he came up in a Christian environment, but was also product of the Enlightenment. He's reading, he's doing all this scientific discovery, and you know he, in his mind, there was a conflict between the two. Now we as Christians don't believe this conflict between reason and faith, and between science and faith. We actually think you can reason your way toward faith. You know Thomas Aquinas and others have, have taught us that. Um, but for him. It was it was too big of a conflict. I also think, in his life, part of the reason he did that is, you know, it was kind of theology matching lifestyle, right? He had a you know lifestyle in terms of his morality and his, his thinking about slavery and all these things that I think conflicted with scripture. And so, what a lot of folks do is they will sort of work backward and say, well, maybe God didn't say this, or maybe this isn't really true to sort of conform to. Um, my life. And yet what's interesting is he he's very vocal like a lot of the founders in saying that this country, freedom and democracy, all of this 
cannot work unless there's a religious and moral people. So he understood the value of it, but he could not come to grips with the truth of that God has um, visited humans in in Jesus and that Jesus was fully God and fully man, that, that Jesus uh, can be our personal Lord and Savior and and. Um, I think those are too much for him. Yeah, Daniel, uh, is there a copy? I mean, did, did they create copies of the Jefferson Bible? It's got to be like ten pages. <laughs> yeah, I think there's some copies in different places. I I believe some of the museums have them. I don't know if the Museum of the Bible has one, but it may. But don't quote me on that. But I think there's a few copies in different places. It's interesting. He actually never published it, but he sort of kept it private. And then obviously in his correspondence with. With uh, Adams and others, he expressed some of those views. You know, uh, some of the founders were believers, but but some of them, you know, were were more where Jefferson and Franklin were. Uh, Thomas Kidd has a great book on Jefferson that, that about his faith that came out a couple of years ago, which I think really walks through that. Dan Darling's with us, author of several books, including The Dignity Revolution and The Characters of Christmas. That might be something for you to look at this time of year. Um, Dan, let's talk about the overall um, idea, though, of getting rid of or just not focusing on or really taking seriously the parts of Scripture that conflict with our character or our tendencies or whatever it is. All of us, as you say, have done that at one time or another, probably are still doing it Mm -hmm. even as we speak. So talk about that a bit. Yeah, I think as conservative Christians, conservative evangelicals, we would reject the Jefferson Bible, obviously. We believe the Bible, as, as it says in Timothy, as Paul told Timothy, it's, it's inspired and it's, um, it's sufficient for, for faith and practice. It's inerrant, meaning that there's, as, as the Baptist statement says, there's truth without any mixture of error, and most evangelicals believe that. So we would reject attempts like by Jefferson or even by some progressives who want to sort of um, – you know, amend what the Bible says about sexual ethics or some other things like uh, like that. But we also have our own areas where we're tempted to do the same sort, have the same sort of approach, even if we don't admit it, right? So um, in this particular article, I was talking about our tendency to sort of um, dismiss or overlook all of the passages in Scripture that really talk about our speech and how we speak to one another, how we talk to one another, our conduct. Um, there's been a lot of conversation among Christians about about this idea of civility and the way we speak. That mm-hmm. maybe the time maybe the times are so bad and we have to be mm-hmm. so bold that maybe we just kind of throw all that out and say, you know, it doesn't matter how we speak. And really, the Bible doesn't allow us to do that. Yes. So kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. I mean, those are core to what it is to be a follower of Jesus. But uh, what your your point is, Daniel, that in this day and age, people say, well, you know, Jesus was he was turning over tables. So uh, I'm going for that guy as opposed to the gentle uh, kind. How many times do we hear that? Yep. Yeah, we do. I mean, and and it's amazing how often that one incident, Jesus turning over tables, kind of covers all of our all of our uh, outbursts. And and it's true, Jesus did have righteous anger in the temple. Sure, there is a there is a way to have righteous anger. Where Paul says, you know, in Ephesians, be angry and sin not. So there's a way to have anger that is not sinful. But we have to remember with Jesus turning over the table in the temple, uh, the the tables in the temple. Number one, we, you know, we're not Jesus. He was the Son of God on a divine mission to cleanse the temple as part of his. Um, you know, his first advent to come and, and, and uh, you know, die for the sins of the world. Number one, we're not Jesus. Number two, we're not Jesus in the sense that he was without sin, and we are. And we often don't know that line between uh, when we have righteous hanging and we don't. Mm-hmm. So we have to be very careful. And three, Jesus 
more than he he showed gentleness and kindness far more than he showed anger. And um, Jesus turning over the tables is not a blank check for every time we get mad in traffic or every time we get angry on Facebook or whatever. And what I think is interesting, guys, is that the apostles, you know, Peter and Paul wrote in their epistles in the New Testament, they urged the people of God who were under tremendous persecution, worse than we are here in America, to say, yes, be bold, be courageous, be unflinching in what you proclaim about the gospel and proclaim about what's true. But also, the way you conduct yourself should be distinctive. You should be kind and um, gentle, should demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit. And these are the apostles saying it, the the, the ones who would would be martyred for their faith. And so one of the things I like to tell people is that, you know, me on Facebook or me on Twitter or me being angry or saying something crass, I'm not not more courageous than the apostles (laughs) who who lost their lives. And so I think we have to really heed what they're saying um, and, and try to speak boldly, but also do it in a distinctly Christian way. Yeah. And especially in this day and age, right? I mean, because uh, everything is amped up. Everything. That's the way it seems. There is just a motion that's high. And of course, as believers, we, uh, we should be, and essentially we are under a microscope more than ever. We are. And you know, Peter says in first Peter three fifteen and 16, um, have an answer for every person for the hope that lies within you. So speak to the questions of the age. We, we don't want to back down. We want to speak truth because uh, people need to hear truth so they can uh, find Jesus, who's the, the source of truth. But also, he says to do it with gentleness and kindness. And so we can do both of those things at the same time. Um, and if you look at the qualifications that are listed in the New Testament for Christian leaders in, in uh, Timothy and Titus, uh, we, we usually gravitate to the giftedness, you know, or the moral questions, which are very important, you know, someone faithful in their marriage and to their, to their family. But all the rest of the attributes are temperament and tone and the way you conduct mm-hmm. yourself. And the Bible is saying that the people worth following, the people worth putting in leadership are the ones who exhibit the, the ongoing work of the Spirit in their life the one who is self-controlled, the one who is measured, even though they're courageous and bold. And I think sometimes Christians, we say, well, it doesn't matter how you act as long as you're, you know, if you're on the right side, it doesn't matter how you say it. It doesn't matter how you conduct yourself. It doesn't matter what kind of language you use or how you treat people as long as you're on the right side. And uh, that's just not a New Testament principle. (laughs) Uh, The Bible cares very much about how we conduct ourselves and that we're exhibiting, you know, those fruits of the Spirit. Mm Mm-hmm. It is so easy to for us to decide what we think the Bible tells us to do based on what we want to do. My lived experience. It's very easy. Yeah. It's very easy to do that. I think part of, at least part of my uh, daily confession has something to do with how <laughs> how I end up uh, morphing the scriptures or following Jesus because of what I am, you know, currently able to do or, you know, uh, somehow good at doing versus the whole entirety of it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's right. I mean, I think we self-justify, right? We, yep. we say, well, this is what scripture says, but in my case, it's different. <laughs> right. right. You know, I've heard people say, and I think this is well-meaning because well, you need to know what time it is. It's a different time. So the rules are different. Well, I, I don't think the rules governing Christian behavior have changed, right, from the first century, from the apostles. And so this is this is not to say that we shouldn't speak out and be bold and we shouldn't 
declare what is true. And sometimes we'll do that and we'll get opposition because um, Jesus promised that. But we also have to ask ourselves, are, are people opposing us because of what we're saying or because of the way we're saying it? Yeah. That's and I, I think we constantly have to reexamine our lives and say, how am I uh, behaving? I, I think there's a difference between niceness, being nice and being civil. You know, mm-hmm. nice is kind of like, I want everyone to like me. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to be bold. Civil is, I'm going to be firm. I'm going to sp- uh, speak the truth. I'm willing to suffer consequences for it. But the way I'm going to do it is going to be distinctly Christian. I'm into that. Daniel, thanks so much. Always love having you with us. Hey, people are listening and they want to find you online. Uh, tell us where we can go. Well, you go to my website, DanielDarling.com, and we have links to uh, all of my uh, social media there and my books and, and my articles. You can sign up for my newsletter as well. Fabulous. We love them. DanielDarling.com for more insight and wisdom. Take a quick break. Come back. It's a Tuesday edition of The Ride Home, Pittsburgh's Christian Talk on Word FM. the holidays are upon us, which means gatherings, whether it's family parties, friends, or even work parties, it's time to get together and, uh, and share, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, six tips to turn light chats into deep talk at holiday gatherings. Oh. Something you're interested in? Well, yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. I mean, it depends on when. Like, as we're getting dinner on the table, no. No. But if you're like, if you're at a cocktail party, yes. right, and there's holiday cheer, people say, well, people come, hey, how you doing? Mm-hmm. That's always an opening salad. Right. How you doing? That goes nowhere. That right? r- truly goes nowhere. I mean, people say uh, often, well, uh, only politicians and salespeople are really the great conversationalists, and, and, and only extroverts can thrive socially. That's not true. No, it's not true. Okay, so with some practice, I think that all of us can master the art, at least, of connectivity, of okay. being a yeah. better connector. Yeah, yeah. Meeting somebody new, ask a novel question. Instead of saying, hey, uh, you know, how are things? You could say, um, what's one thing that you're really looking forward to this holiday season? Okay, that's weird. No, it's not. No, I think it's weird. Why? What? Okay. It because, would force you out of that box. Because, like, if I'm, if we're talking to Lex yeah. at the Christmas party, <clears throat> and we sit down and say, hey, Lex, what's one thing you're looking forward to at Christmas? She's going to be like, oh, okay, I'm looking forward to, yeah, like... Yeah, yeah. But not to a stranger. My, my cat unwrapping her, her gifts. If you go up to some dude that you don't know. Hey, dude. Hey, hi, my name's Kathy. What's one thing you're looking forward? That's weird. <laughs> don't you think? Well, maybe after a few minutes of, conver- okay. of a light talk. Not like, like, it's not your opening salvo. Okay. Or right? what, Yes. Okay. So it's not your opening salvo. Or no. maybe you could say, what are you looking forward to about Christmas? That might be a little. There you go. Okay. A little okay. better. Okay. okay. They're also saying, again, you might, you'll, you'll recall at this. <laughs> what? <laughs> Now I'm a little afraid to say it. What was the highlight of your year? <laughs> hi, hi. Your name is oh yeah. Johnny. Oh hi Johnny. What's the highlight of your year? No, that's it. Yeah. Right. No, you're right. You have to get into the conversation. There's a little, a little. You know, bit of flow here. Yeah. That's all right. Um, <laughs> hoping to reconnect. Try a creative icebreaker. Icebreakers aren't only for the boardroom. Uh, if you're uh, hosting a family dinner party, uh, if you were a celebrity, who would you be? Okay. okay, that's certainly not an opening right. salvo. What's one song that sums up your personality? Oh, who's I mean, going <laughs> to... <laughs> tired of chit-chat? I, Make talk meaningful. What, seriously, okay? what is one song that sums up your personality? Mm-hmm. You light up my life. <laughs> <laughs> I have not... <laughs> and what would you even say? I don't know. Renegade. Exactly. I mean, it's like ridiculous. I mean, 
I got nothing. Right? right. Deck the halls. Okay. Like whatever. Oh, that's my song. Okay. Deck the, don't that's hit what me. I was thinking. Do not smack me. Do not deck the halls. <laughs> okay. Tired of chit chat? Make talk meaningful. Share something purposeful that can uh, promote closeness and reduce loneliness. With, okay. Come on. Reduce loneliness. Reduce loneliness because of the question. After you're this asking, conversation, you'll be standing in the corner all lonely. <laughs> Alone again. No one's going to want to go to a party with you. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Well, the sun is setting on a Tuesday afternoon. It does feel as though we are moving closer yeah. to Christmas, doesn't it? I mean, it's December 5th, so you Yeah, I'm starting go. to get nervous. What? Yeah, a lot of anxiety about it. Thank you. Yo, you're hosting like 8 million people. Well, I'm not house. really concerned about that, but there's a lot of baking that has to happen in my mm-hmm. life. And you're already, but you already bought your presents. I have some kid presents in my family I haven't purchased yet. Okay, well. You know what I mean? Yeah. Books. Maybe. Slinky, or toys or that slinky, sort of thing. I, don't, I haven't purchased those yet. I mean, it's that's low anxiety. Yeah, but the but the I purchased my gift for the uh, Word FM Christmas party tomorrow. Yeah. At White Elephant. How is it? It's pretty good. Good. I feel like I might want to grab it. Please don't tell me it's a scented candle. That's lame. No scented candles. No. Although I brought one last year. You bought one? I brought one last year, and then you mocked me throughout the entire party. Oh, good. Because I think they cause cancer. Do you think? Well, it's burning something. Get out of here. All of a sudden, you know, next year I come in and calf because of the candle. I'm dead. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Shifting conversation away from the candle. I saw this article in The Guardian about what's going on in New York City. Now, there's a lot that goes on in New York City, but particular to um, the environment that they're living in, they're poised to get a lot more trees. Because just last month, the city council passed a measure calling for 30% canopy cover by 2035. Now, we've seen all of these things. You know, the entire fleet of every American car manufacturer is going to be electric only in eight years or Come something on, crazy ridiculous. that I don't no even buy. Do I don't even no. buy that that is going I don't happen. want an electric it's car. Ridiculous. However... I'm much more supportive of a measure calling for canopy cover Mm -hmm. because that's something that actually makes sense to me and that could be accomplished. Anyway, 30% up from its current cover of 22%. A recent tree census found there's enough room in the city to plant an additional 250,000 new trees. Really? Now, you've lived in New York for a long time. Yeah. That's a lot of trees. It's a lot of trees. Here's the deal. In Central Park or some of the smaller parks around Manhattan, sure, that's fine. But like like trees on the curb or Yeah, you know, that's what they're the talking city, about. Forget it. That's forget what they're it. talking about. Those trees get so mangled. People beat on those, they run over them, they use them to chain their bicycle up to. They're, the survival rate of those kind of trees, I believe is very low. Well, I think those are the kind of trees they're really? talking I don't think they're talking about planting more trees in Central Park. I think it would probably say that. Listen to this. They say more trees, with all their cooling benefits, is a clear win for the environmental justice movement as cities around the world seek to adapt to hotter temperatures. That makes mm-hmm, sense, sure. right? But where those trees should go is not so straightforward. So this guy named Alexander Kobold, who works at Cornell, said... 
probably the same thing you're thinking. It's not just about planting more trees. It's important where we plant them. Sure. And we need to have the right tree in the right spot. So they survive. Right. Exactly. Um, so exposure to trees has been shown to boost immunity, lower stress and blood pressure, enhance mood, sharpen focus and increase energy levels. As crazy as all of that sounds, I buy it. Yeah, me too. Trees are great. I love a tree. I think trees are so excellent. Yeah. And so if the reason I bring this up, obviously we're not living in New York City, but if tomorrow Pittsburgh announced that our city council is considering a measure calling for increased canopy cover across the city, how would you respond? Very positive. Me too. More trees, please. Me too. More trees everywhere. Because look, look, look at how much asphalt is around us. Exactly. Right? Wouldn't it be better to like reduce the asphalt I think cover? That would be, I think wherever you can plant trees, and yeah. I'm not saying that you go willy-nilly and plant the wrong tree in the wrong space, mm-hmm. but wherever you could introduce a tree, the right one for that spot, I say go for it. I agree, yeah. We were talking about trees the other night in a small group. Uh, the story of Zacchaeus. Mm-hmm. The Z- wee little man. Yeah. He climbed a sycamore fig tree. A sycamore fig. I thought it was just a sycamore tree. Sycamore, sycamore fig. fig. Yeah. We, we talked about this. And I was like, well, I mean, I've climbed sycamore trees. That's a big tree. And someone had said, oh, I know sycamore fig trees. They're gigantic trees. How about that? The combination of the two. I think it's kind of sad that Zacchaeus, who was like a shorter man, mm-hmm. is somehow now like looked at as miniature. Who like he was, well, because the song, the little wee, kid song, oh, right, he's right. the wee little man. He's like, you know, Zacchaeus. an inch big. That doesn't seem right. I was listening to watching football the other day and walking through the living room and one of the commentators and it wasn't a Steeler game said, and Zacchaeus. And I was like, what? So there's a guy playing in the NFL whose name is Zacchaeus. Is that right? Mm-hmm. He's probably not a little man. Probably not. Mm-mm. Have you seen that running back for Michigan? Who? Uh, I can't think of his name right now, but he's five eight. Oh, really? And out there, I'm not kidding you. Oh, out there, like he looks like he's five. He looks like he's like five three. Of course, because he's with guys who are he six looks five, six six. Incredibly small. Interesting. But yeah, he's about. He might have even. I didn't stay up for the rest of the game. He might have set the record. Uh, maybe it was all was it all time yards. I know he's a senior at Michigan this year. Interesting. I'm going to look him up. All right. Talk about it later. But right now we have to break because Terry Tim's in the on deck. Wait, wait. We went from trees to Zacchaeus. That's the to, ride home. Yeah, that is all right. This past Sunday, of course, was the first Sunday of Advent, and Pastor Terry Tim is back with us to talk about this. Terry Tim is the pastor at Christ Community Church of the South Hills. Ter, happy Advent to you. I was going to say Happy New Year. Whoa. Oh. What do you mean? Well, this past Sunday, as you said, was the first Sunday of Advent. Yeah. Yeah. As followers of Jesus, we are people of two calendars. What I mean by that is, you know, we have this calendar, you know, today it says it's uh, December 5th, 2023. Um, January 1st, 2024 is typically when we will say Happy New Year. But there's another calendar that's actually at work in the lives of followers of Jesus in the life of the church. And that's what we call the liturgical calendar. And actually, the first Sunday of Advent, which happened to be December 3rd, is the new year it's when the new liturgical calendar begins. How about that? Oh, now that's really interesting. I never knew that. I did not know that. What? Yeah, the Advent begins. This, you know, the liturgical calendars. We move through the seasons. We 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 reflect on the life 
of Jesus, his entrance into the world. We move into Lent when we go to the cross, kingdom Pentecost and kingdom tide. And and then the cycle begins again uh, next year in Advent. So happy new year to uh, All God's right. people. All I right, like Terrell, it. take it. Happy new year. That makes sense. Of course, Jesus entering into the world is a new beginning. Yeah. And that's why I, I actually I've come to love Advent uh, so much. It's my I think it's my favorite season mm. because just as kind of in the in the Julian calendar when we get to the new year, that's that's when people kind of reboot, right? They they make resolutions yep. and commitments, they get intentional. But this this Advent season gives me and you and us, if we choose to take it, an opportunity to to reset, to reboot, to think like. What about the spiritual practices in my life? Am I actually making room for God in my life? And so this mm. is a this is a wake up call and an opportunity to say, okay, let's 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 get our acts together here and let's be more intentional about creating space in our lives individually and communally for Jesus. That's good. Making room for Jesus, making room in Advent for Jesus. Okay, so Ter, uh, as you go about your your year. What what's it like for you as you make room? I mean, um, uh, I'll just answer my own question. I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, years and years and years ago, uh, someone sent me two apps that I love, that I use. Mm. They're, they're devotional apps that I use one or the other. I try to do this daily, maybe 12 or 13 minutes long. I'm taking a walk or whatnot, or I've got some quiet time. I use these. And I often think about this. As I'm listening to this app, I'm also thinking about other people. I'm thinking, oh, I wonder if my sister, I'd like to send this to my sister, mm-hmm. you know, for her to engage with this as well. Mm-hmm. I never follow through because there's a host of other things around that. But, uh, but those apps are really important to me to make room. I'm intentional about that. How about yourself? They're tools. Yes. So, so this idea of making room for me, it, it, it starts in the biblical narrative. If you look at the Christmas story in the gospel of Luke, it's really interesting that the, the story of Jesus actually begins with the story of John the Baptist, which begins with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. This older couple who are childless, uh, God visits Zechariah when he's in the temple and it says, your, your wife is going to have a, have a child and he's going to be the one who comes before the one, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so there's a miraculous pregnancy uh, in, Jesus, in uh, Elizabeth's life. And then when you turn the page, uh, there's this miraculous conception where uh, Jesus is embodied by Mary. And Mary has to make room in her life. I love Mary's response to the angel. May it be done to me according to your word. I'm going to make room in my life for the presence of Jesus in my physical body. And and so for me, John, I, I love your point of like, what are some of the tools and some of the practices that we can integrate into our life? So for me, in this this Advent season, one of the the primary practices that I am engaging in is something called Visio Divina, Hmm. a holy seeing. Some of of us might be familiar with Lectio Divina, which is a holy reading of Scripture, which is a beautiful way to engage with God's Word. Visio Divina uh, takes it kind of one step further, taking Scripture 
but then using artwork that captures some of these uh, these biblical narratives. And so for me, my practice uh, so far, three or four days into Advent, but it's my intention every morning to begin with silence, 15 minutes of silence, and then some reflection on sacred art that helps me live more deeply into the Christmas narrative. Mm. So I'm making space every morning to engage in that spiritual practice. I love this. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Tia, I'm glad you brought this up because as I'm listening to this app of mine, that it is, it, it follows a format and the format is, you know, there's, um, there's a scripture reading, then there's pause, then there's music and whatnot. What I find is that the slowness of the experience jars me. It makes me anxious. Now, 15 mm-hmm. minutes, you're saying you spend 15 minutes in silence. That's a long time, isn't it? Well, it is. And I, I'm an action-oriented kind of person. Yes, you are. And, and I've actually been practicing the silence. I, I'm being... This is full transparency. When I started the practice of silence, I, I use a timer on my phone. Mm-hmm. John, I started at one minute. Yeah, that's, I, I believe that. I, I, yeah, I would have to do that as well. And each week I've been trying to add one minute to my time of silence. So if you could do the math there, if I started at one minute and added one minute of silence, you, you could see how many weeks it's taken me to get to my 15 minutes. And I, I say that to encourage people, spiritual practices and disciplines, they quite often, they invite us to use muscles that we are not familiar with or muscles that we haven't engaged very often. And we, we can try and we can get comfortable with some different kind of postures, but be graceful with yourself and and acknowledge, yeah, this, this makes me anxious. What is it about the anxiety? Where's that coming from? And I would say, John, I'm going to play spiritual director right now for a moment. What's the invitation from God to you, even in the midst of that anxiety? Hmm. What might God be whispering to you um, uniquely to to you, John, like in that in that feeling of anxiety? That's really good. What is God whispering in that feeling of anxiety? So asking that question, um, I think, is. I was going to say essential, but I guess it's not essential. But I think it's indicative of being willing to have a deeper relationship with God. Because I think that our, uh, a lot of the discipleship models that we use are answer based. Um, you know, we need to be trained in X. Right. Or we Here's need to the be. Q, you right, need the A. Right. You need to be trained in Y. But, but asking what might God want is assuming that God is active present. and present and listening. And as much as we might say we believe that, I do think a lot of our discipleship models don't don't really act that way. Kathy, that's that's so spot on. I think many of us in the church, we, we, we make this decision to follow Jesus. We experience his grace and his forgiveness and his goodness. And our, then our posture is, God, what can I do for you? Mm-hmm. And we get into doing for Jesus mode. 
And there's something good and right about that. And like I, I'm not I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing things uh, for God and for God's kingdom, but God actually wants to do something for us. And that's a flipped paradigm. That means I actually need to slow down. I need to use the words of Psalm 46 to cease my striving to be still and say, God, what do you actually want to do for me? And part of that is just is slowing down and being receptive to what God, again, may want to whisper or shout or uh or just help me be aware of what's the invitation from God. And and you talked about, too, Kathy, we, we live in a this, this sounds a little funny because I'm saying this on on Word FM. We are a word centered culture. Yeah. And what I mean by that is like we're we're left brain, logical, figure it out, rational, conceptual kinds of people. That's great. Because we have a left brain that God has given us, but we also have a right brain. And for me, that's, again, one of the reasons why I'm doing Visio Divina. I'm using artwork because art helps me actually connect my left side of my brain with my right side of the brain. Hmm. And guess what? God actually wants us to love God with our whole brain, not just the rational, conceptual, intellectual side of our brain. So uh, for some of us who are very word oriented, getting in touch with the imagination, color, mystery, creativity, it's another opportunity to actually connect with the one who is said, I'm Emmanuel. I'm 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 the God who is with you. Okay, so that doesn't mean that we have to. I, at least I don't. I, I should phrase it as a question. Do you think that means we have to become less word centered? No, but we need to. We need to learn how to engage with the word. Yeah, I okay. would say holistically. Yeah. yeah, and and even even when we use the word word. Like quite often we think, well, the the word of God is scripture, which is true. The word of God is scripture, but there's a deeper word of God who stands behind the scriptures and in the scriptures. And that is actually Jesus. Mm -hmm. Jesus is the word of God. And so uh, I think we need to be careful that just, just because we're interacting or engaging with words on a page or a Bible app on our phone, we can, we can, I can conceptualize that away. I can intellectualize that away and I can read all sorts of stuff and not necessarily actually been encountered by the living God. Mm -hmm. And, and this is, this is what is the beauty of Advent. We have all these opportunities to slow down and become more and more and more aware of the God who is present with us. So, yeah, we we, we want to be word-centered, but we want to be holistically yeah. connected to Jesus, the living word of God. Yeah. Tara, we need to step away for just a minute. Can you stay with us for a few more minutes? Sure, be glad to. Very nice. We're talking with Pastor Terry Tim, and uh, we're talking about making room in Advent to be still and know that I am God, to be still in silence. Stay with us. We're Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's the ride home.
We're back with Reverend Terry Tim from Christ Community Church of the South Hills. Terry, uh, I really appreciate you sharing this um, this experience that you've crafted for yourself, that you've gone from intentionally each day to sit in silence for 60 seconds and the oddity, the difficulty, the anxiousness of that 60 seconds, because we do live, of course, in deeply anxious times. All of us wear that cloak very tight, the anxiousness. But then to go into 60 seconds of silence and then each day slightly push forward a little further and further and further until now you're saying as a spiritual exercise to draw you closer to God, you are sitting in silence for 15 minutes. I mean, what's that like internally? What is your journey like as you travel those 15 minutes? I'm all over the map, John. Some days it's uh it's easier to be locked in uh to what i would say is god's presence uh and and to be very calm and and relaxed <laughs> dallas willard years ago somebody said if you could pick one word to describe jesus what would it be and dallas willard said jesus was relaxed <laughs> interesting way to think about jesus but but like jesus was chill uh Jesus knew how to slow down and uh, and separate and and spend his time with the Father. So some some days it's it's very relaxing, it's very peaceful. Other days, quite frankly, it's work. My mind goes in a million different directions. What do I have to do this day? What are the tasks that are in front of me? Who are the people that are on my mind and heart who are struggling or wrestling with all sorts of things? And and it takes work. Like Holy Spirit, bring me back to a centered place, a sense of stillness and peace. One of the practices that that I am integrating that helps me stay in that good space with God is uh, using my breath as a mm. prayer. Mm-hmm. And so just just finding the rhythm of my inhale and exhale. And sometimes it's just focusing on my breath, but often I will attach. Uh, attach words to it. Uh, yet yesterday, uh, my breath prayer had to do with silence. I was doing some some uh, reading about how uh, God silenced Zechariah in the temple in Luke Luke chapter one, and so my breath prayer was, "Your words, God, not mine." And so when I would inhale, I would I would pray that phrase, "Your words, God," and on my exhale, "Not mine." Mm-hmm. Just this reminder that, you know, here I am talking on the radio, like I talk a lot. (laughs) It's just part of my work, but I want to make sure that I'm actually speaking the words of God. And often it would be better to just be silent that that's not great for radio to have like let's let's do a segment of silence <laughs> we tried that <laughs> but you guys know you, you know what i'm talking about of course. right sure. you, you talk for a living and you know we can get caught up in that and so uh breathing being still and and asking god to to recapture my mind when it goes astray in that silence and it happens all the time john all the time 
That's excellent. Mm. That's really powerful. I mean, that speaks to me, Terry. I, I really, really appreciate you coming by and talking about this today because, I mean, I hang my hat on that anxiety. This is, you know, I think for a lot of people, for me, I'll say, you know, a center point to my life. So I want that silence. I desire it. I squeeze it. But I'm just poor in creating the muscle mm-hmm. so it comes in. Yeah. Me. Yeah. Yeah. So my 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 prayer in 2023 has come from uh, Talia de Chardon, and, and it's it begins with these words: "Above all else, trust in the slow work of God." Mm. And I don't know if God's going to continue that into 2024. Probably because I'm a slow learner. But there is something. There, there's beauty and power. Do I? First of all, do I trust God? And do I trust that sometimes, in fact, often God's promises, they take time to ripen. I, w- I want a microwavable kind of prog- promise. I, I want to be able to zap that thing in 45 seconds or a minute and it's good to go. But quite often in our lives, in my life, the work of God is slow. And I just, I need to trust that in God's time and in God's way. And again, that's, that's a beautiful part of this Advent season. It took nine months for Jesus to grow up inside of Mary's womb before he was ready to enter in into the fullness of his humanity. Nine months. Like, and I want things to happen now. Right. Above all else. Trust in the slow mm-hmm. works of God. Mm-hmm. Terry Tim, Christ Community Church of the South Hills. Terry, talk to us about uh, your church, Advent, and as we move into the Christmas celebration, what's going on? Yes. So we are, I mean, th- our theme this year is making room, and we're exploring all sorts of different things, that invitations that the Lord may be extending to us uh, in our Sunday gatherings. Um we meet at 955 East McMurray Road in McMurray, uh, PA. On Tuesday nights, we're actually doing via Zoom. We're doing uh, corporate Visio Divina. So if anybody's interested in that, mm. check out our Facebook page. We'll have a link there, Christ Community Church of the South Hills. Uh, we'll do about a 30 or 40-minute corporate Visio Divina. What time's that? That that happens at seven o'clock uh, on Tuesday nights. Uh, every every Tuesday night in in Advent. That's tonight. Um, that's tonight. We're also doing something on December twenty first, which is uh, we've been doing this over the past couple of years. And John, this maybe speaks to your anxiety piece. We do a blue litur- a blue Christmas liturgy, recognizing that for many of us, mm. the holiday season yep. is particularly hard. Grief, loss, lament, sorrow—the the, the, you know the the pain and the tragedy in our global world, yeah. and the pain and tragedy in our personal world worlds. So we we do on the twenty first, the longest night. We do this blue Christmas liturgy, and it's very very powerful. Oh, I love it's, that! I love that you do that. It's kind of Christmas in a minor yeah, key. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I often think how absolutely disparate how absolutely disparate our Christmas Eve service is, you know, at the church, at whatever church, um, versus the actual, the original Christmas Eve, (laughs) which was chaos and, you know, painful painful and probably panic stricken and everything going wrong and just a disaster. And we all come in with our hair bows and, you know, suits and it's all beauty. It's just, it's funny how things morph. 
It is. And that and that's exactly why we do the Blue Christmas liturgy. It's it, it speaks very powerfully to, to many of us. Wow, that's terrific. All right. Uh give us the website again, Tara. It's actually Christ Community Church dot M E. Christ Community Church dot M E. And you can find all the information there. Sounds good. It's Reverend Terry Tim. Merry Christmas to you, friend. Merry Christmas, Terry. Same to you, John and Kathy. Blessings. Does what make sense? Outdoor shopping. By outdoor shopping, I mean you're not in a mall. Maybe you're not in a grocery store. You mean like a market or yep. a flea market or yep. like down a market square? Yep. Or maybe the strip? Well, it, it's and not- you're And you're going to have to walk around in the snow, particularly I'm thinking about today. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to walk around in cold weather. To accomplish it. Does that make sense? Yes. It does. I like it a lot. I don't do it enough, so it's still a novelty to yeah. me. Uh-huh. But if I guess if it was a regular occurrence, you go, oh, I'm going to you know buy some turnips in the snow. Sure. Like it's all of a sudden I'm like, you know, in Leningrad. Right, right. <laughs> right. right. You know. But you know, to go to like to an outdoor market or a flea market or a farmer's market, it's very enjoyable. Yeah. yeah I think it makes perfect sense. I agree. And I agree mm-hmm. heartily. And I feel like, for me, I'm healthier because of it. Healthier. I feel like, like getting doing steps. out. Mm-hmm. It's just getting. I don't know if it's as much the exercise, though it might be. It's just, it seems like you're embracing things. Mm-hmm. People are different. You're, yes. You're, maybe it's the extra effort that you're putting in. I feel like it pays off. But what if you were like, you know, shopping for a dress outside? Well, yeah. be different, right? It would be right. Yeah, but but if you're you know carrying all your bags over your shoulder, it's yep. a pain, mm-hmm. right? It's more trouble. It's a lot easier to just go to one store, go to the mall, and, right. and then walk out to the car. It feels hardy. It does feel mm-hmm. hardy. Mm-hmm. That's the word. Hardy. And you feel heartier mm-hmm. because of it. It's mm-hmm. good. Okay, so yeah, we both agree that mm-hmm. shopping outdoors. Yeah. All right, does this make sense? Eyebrow care. Okay, now, I get women with our eyebrow care. Yeah, for sure. Now, I go to a barber, and the barber goes, my, my guy, goes, Jerry, goes, hey, you want me to trim those up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm always big, big. But there are other guys, I've heard other guys go, no way, don't touch him. What? You see guys, and it's a fashion statement That's to not some a degree. fashion statement. It's long, it's, it's like not. you could put a cup of coffee on, right. like a little shelf. Yeah, it's not a coffee. Eyebrow not. care. It, yeah. It, I mean... Every guy's got their own look. Sure. Does it make sense? No. Eyebrow care makes every bit of sense. And men who don't think it makes sense don't know women. (laughs) 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 Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Eyebrow care also goes over at a certain age into ear hair care. I can only imagine. Right? Yeah. I mean, you have to be vigilant. Those, those little units that... Zzz, yeah, zzz, I got that. Zzz. Let's go. Oh, yeah. Like, clean up the eyebrows, friends. Tighten it up. Let's just... Let's tighten it up. I think it's fair to say that with streaming and all the varieties of platforms, we live, if you're so inclined, in a golden age of stand-up comics. Oh, yeah. Big time. They are everywhere. I mean, Netflix, they are... Yeah, they're all kinds of specials. Yep. 
Uh, they're on Hulu. They're on YouTube. I mean, they're on Max. Wherever you go, there are comedy specials, which mm-hmm. means there's a lot of comedians working right now and in places that we would never have seen before, before streaming, because they provide us with this opportunity to dig a lot deeper. Right. Uh, in today's New York Times, they have the best comedy of 2023. Oh, yeah? So this is the year-end list, okay. right? Best shows, best All movies. Right. So now they're the best comedy, and they start okay, off so with the winner here. All right. Uh, yeah. Uh, the writer is a, a guy named Jason uh, Zoman. And uh, he said, comedy doesn't boom or bust this year. Comedy sprawled. There seemed to be more specials than ever, more self-released. Yet Netflix still reigned. And so then he goes through a, le- a series of lists. Best special this year. Okay. He says, it's easy to take Jim Gaffigan for granted. Mm. His consistency can become boring, and his interests, food and religion, tend not to draw headlines. But over the years, Jim Gaffigan has been pigeonholed as the clean comic or the hot pocket one, which, of course, is his signature bit. But (laughs) But while Jim Gaffigan is not flashy, he gets a little better figuring out new challenges that fit his everyday aesthetic. With his tenth special, Dark Pale, on Prime, his video has been his darker, comedy. Isn't it darker shade of pale? Darker shade of yeah. pale. Yeah, uh, has become so skillful, varied, and pleasingly prickly that it demands closer attention. Leveraging his d- benign dad persona, he paints a scathing portrait of our culture post-pandemic that makes you laugh at our cruelty, our haplessness, yeah. and our delusions. It is excellent. It is. It okay. is. So that's their best special of the year. Yep. Okay. Darker Shade of Pale. It's very, very yeah. good. Dark very pale. good. So then they go on and list the other categories. Uh, best Breakthrough Comedian of the Year okay. is a woman by the name of Beth Stelling, S-T-E-L-L-I-N-G. Uh, this, the comedy special, it's a new hour. If you didn't want me then on Netflix, Beth okay. Stelling. She uh, pauses for a, a, a precise beat, um, and she talks about a, any number of things. They, they, they talk about Beth Stelling and her comic timing. Okay. But they say it's off the charts. Now, again, here's the deal. We started off with Mr. Clean. Yes. Now, as you delve deeper, of course, everybody oh, knows Oh, yeah, this, we know what comedy's like, right? right? Comedy is a minefield. So I'm not saying I'm recommending any of this. Right. I'm just saying I'm reading this piece from the New York Times, and they're, they're mentioning their best comics of the year. So I know nothing of Beth Stelling, mm-hmm. whether she's clean or not. Okay. All right. Best storyteller. A guy by the name of Ali Siddig, S-I-D-D-I-Q. Oh, yes. Best storyteller. It's, the, the Times says this. It's exciting to come across a comic who resists comparisons. And in his fascinating special, The Domino Effect Part 2 Loss on YouTube, Ali Siddig tells childhood stories with a jaunty delivery that is a different pace than anyone else. Oh. Is he even a comic? He's telling high-stakes, dramatic tales of heartbreak and run-ins with the police, but with the lightness and the ease of someone just filling you in about their day. Okay. He's interesting. I, I, I just looked him up. I recognize his face, so I know I've seen something by him probably on YouTube. Lex, do you know this guy? Not off the top of my head. Okay. S-I-D-D-I-Q. In 2013, Comedy Central named him the number one comic to watch. Really? Okay. 2013. Yeah. So here he is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Best bit, the Times says. A guy named John Early, a forerunner of and the gold standard for the genre, which I don't know the genre well, the um, genre of musical comedians. 
He parodies millennial and Gen Z vanity. Uh, John Early's long-awaited special called Now More Than Ever, which is on Max, is a mix of stylish satire, soulful cover songs, and occasional observational humor. John Early with best bits. He's got a picture of him sitting in a drum set. Okay. So I'm very interested about Interesting. that. Interesting. Okay. okay. Best new double act, two comedians at a time. Oh. I, I, in Pittsburgh, I grew up with a couple of guys from CMU, Zito and Bean. Okay. And they were two guys, super, super funny. Uh, one is still working. One is past. But okay. Zito and Bean. So best new double act, like many funny duos, April Clark and Grace Freud of Girl God. Look and sound nothing alike. One's a lanky slacker, the other's a more fiery baritone, but they riff effortlessly that they merge. So, um, okay. where are they? They are uh, they're on YouTube as well. Uh, April Clark and Grace Freud of Girl God. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, best Canadian newcomer, someone by the name of Sophie Bundle. Uh, she was on The Tonight Show in April, and she said... Um, I moved to America this year because I wanted to see it before it ends. <laughs> and then she giggles. That's how she started her set. What? This chirpy that hurts to laugh. Yep. The chirpy oh. comic maintains a steady, nervous chuckle while joking about annoying L.A. types and what it is to live in America. Okay. Again, I know nothing about them. Right. Either they're clean or not, but they're out there. Right. Okay. Best impressions. John Mulvaney. Mulaney. Mulaney. Oh, my gosh. The Baby J special he, on Netflix. Do you like John Mulaney, Alex? I love John Mulaney. Yeah. And I think he's an outstanding storyteller. Oh, he is a great storyteller. So they're they're picking him up because, of course, in this special. Have you seen the Baby J special? No, I haven't. It's on Netflix. Yeah. Uh, he goes into the much-publicized stint in rehab. Yeah, right. And his less-so-equally-talked-about divorce. And so he tells these stories. He has this... Star-studded intervention of a multitude of niche accents of family and friend members talking him through his addiction process. Okay. Mm-hmm. John Mulvaney. Mulaney. But, but that's, it. that's quickly it uh, of the comedy specials yeah. that the, the, the Times Okay, what about, about just comedy specials that you have enjoyed? Like, forget, it doesn't have Wait. to have been made this year. Uh, what's the guy, Nate? Nate Bargatze. Yes. I saw him. I watched two of them over the weekend. Did you? I loved him. Isn't he? Is he's, his face just just? He doesn't even have to say anything. And no, he makes he's me laugh. He's his, kind of a, he's kind of like Jim Gaffigan. He is. He's a, a there's some dad humor mixed in yep, there. He's a believer. He's clean. He is clean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did you watch? The Tennessee Kid. Which mm-hmm. one did you watch? I watched. Yeah, I watched yes. the Tennessee Kid. Yeah. Okay. How about his story about going to Starbucks? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Very, very funny guy. He's very good. Yeah. Uh, so I would say that he was my favorite find this year. Okay. Um, introduced by a couple of friends. Uh, but I think Sebastian Maniscalco is still the top. up there at the top of my list. And yeah. Jim Gaffigan, also mm-hmm. hilarious. Yeah. Sebastian Maniscalco, yeah. Yeah. All right, so... Are you still a Sebastian fan? Oh, very much so. How could you not be? I know. Plus, he's double-edged. He's a killer actor. He How... I love him. I love to... Anytime he's... I go, oh, there... You yeah. know, as Jerry Seinfeld says... Hmm. Comedians can become actors, but actors can never mm, become that comedians. Is, there is so truth to that. Yeah, Lex, yep. do you like Sebastian? I don't think I've ever watched any of his uh, okay. specials. All right. Okay. Uh, we're we're going to finish the show today with a piece of music. Hmm. Uh, Andrew Peterson, mm. who... Such 
man. He's a composer. He's a writer. I'm not a big fan of contemporary Christian music. I'm just not. But Andrew Peterson breaks the mold for me. The um, the piece that he does, Behold the Lamb of God, which came to Pittsburgh when my kids were tiny. Like, this is probably 20 years ago. I love it so much. Mm-hmm. But there is a piece in today's Wall Street Journal about the song, Is He Worthy? Let's play this, and we'll just leave you now and let the song take us out. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? You could see it all made new. Is all creation growing? Is a new creation coming? Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within? Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? Uh, That's Andrew Peterson. We have to exit now, but do yourself a favor. Look for him wherever you're listening to music, whether it's on Apple or YouTube or whatnot. Andrew Peterson. Uh, I just love him so much. And um, Behold the Lamb of God is, is currently touring across the country. And as I said, it does not come to Pittsburgh, which is our loss. Yeah. You can take a trip to Nashville, though. There's going to be a couple uh, it's shows. Is it streaming? Streaming today, as a matter of fact. Is it? At the Ryman Auditorium. Okay, yeah. Because I was going to say, um, third and fourth, it's a 14 event, uh, Behold the Lamb of God Christmas tour. Yep. Man, I'd love to see that. Hey, uh, thanks for being with us, as always. We are happy that you're with us because otherwise we're we would be talking. Yeah, uh, yeah, and we're just grateful for having such a curious audience, um, such a kind and engaging one. So have yourself a great night. The Ride Home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.